You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Everybody wants to rule the world. Lights won't mind me. Holding hands while the walls come. Anybody remember that song? Okay, if you put your hand up, you have to get them dense. Everybody wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to rule the world by tears for fears. How many people remember it? You're showing your age. I remember dancing to Everybody Wants to Rule the World over in Ashton School. They used to have a disco over there, and every now and then they'd they'd let in mere mortals like us into it. A big crowd of us would go from Ballyfehan, just trust me, we weren't the Ashton types, and we would go over to uh, Ashton School, and we would be covered in sweat and sometimes in blood. It was an interesting night out when you went to, but I remember dancing to Everybody Wants to Rule the World, and all of our lives were so filled with hope and filled with energy and expectation. Everybody's going to rule the world, and it's going to be fantastic and then Jerry ended up in prison Sean ended up dead and I ended up and we started off we had such fantastic visions of our lives at the start and very often the fantastic visions that we have for our lives at the start don't always work out but there's an old saying it says expectations are the seeds of resentments sometimes when our lives don't work out the way that we'd like them to work out we can become resentful we can become, you know, upset about the way that things haven't worked out perfectly for me. Now, I don't know about how your parents were, but I never particularly ever remember my father saying to me, son, of course, he was from Cox, he said, son, come here, boy. He would have said to me, he's, I never remember my dad saying to me, you need to fulfill your true potential. I never remember him saying to me, you can be anything you want. You can go anywhere and do anything you want. I never remember my father ever saying that to me. Does anybody have a father like my father? Does anybody have a father like a oh, healing of memories there now for all of those people? I didn't have a dad who was like that. My dad didn't continuously encourage me and tell me how brilliant I was and how, you know, son, you've got such potential in you. It was more like, get out of me way and get up that stairs. It was more like my father raised me. God bless him, the late Conor Donovan. But you know, I think that when we're young and we're full of full of ideas and thoughts, we do sometimes think that we're going to rule the world, that we do have potential. And I think that everybody wants to be somebody. I don't think anybody wants to be a nobody. Will that be true? Nobody wants to be a nobody. Everybody wants to be somebody. And that's pretty reasonable. It's a, it's a good expectation in us that we will actually do something or achieve something or go somewhere and do something in our lives. I want to look at a passage of scripture this morning that, that just touches in and just, just taps on the edge of that idea this morning. And I want to look at the crew of people that were around Jesus and a couple of guys specifically who were around Jesus who had a particular notion about their role in the world. Uh, when I look at it this morning, uh, the title of this morning's oh, you are going to work for me, aren't you? Yeah, the title of this morning's message is The Greatest. And I'm looking at Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And in it, we're going to look at a, just a little encounter that Jesus had with a couple of his disciples and then some wise and lifelong advice he gave to his disciples and things that, even though he said them many thousands of years ago, still don't seem to have uh, gotten into the human DNA in its purest sense. I want to look this morning at the scriptures a minute. When I start off, when I, when I go to Mark chapter 10, I just want to finish off at Mark chapter 9 before I do that because it'll, it's going to make a lot of sense when I get to it, right? 
So Mark chapter 9 finishes off, or sorry, my apologies, Mark chapter 10, or the passage that just comes before this particular passage in Mark chapter 10. Jesus says this, he says, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brother or sisters or mother has, uh, and has given up anything to follow me will receive a hundred times as much in this life and many times more in the world to come. But he says, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who are uh, seen to be the least important now will be the greatest then. He then finishes off by saying this. He says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. And then Jesus said, listen to me, listen to me. They're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples and all their followers. This is coming to the culmination of Jesus' ministry, coming towards the end of his life. He says, listen. And you'd imagine everybody listening. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him with a whip. And they will kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Remember what Jesus, the picture that Jesus is painting as he spells this out, is that he's going up to Jerusalem with all of these people going up. And it says that his disciples were filled with awe at, what, at the way Jesus was setting out. And those who were other followers on the, on, the, on the periphery, they were filled with fear because they knew a big showdown was coming in Jerusalem. They had a certain expectation of what, a, what, a, um, what a, a Messiah was going to be like and what he was going to do and how he was going to treat their enemies. And here Jesus says, I am not going to treat my enemies like that, but my enemies are going to treat me like this. They're going to beat me, flog me, spit on me, mock me, crucify me, but on the third day I will rise again. What Jesus is doing is he's laying out the picture of what's going to happen, which makes the next passage somewhat absurd when you look at it. There was two guys in Jesus' troop that were called the son, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. And they were, anybody know the names of the Sons of Thunder? James and John. James and John were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. Now, I don't think they were called the Sons of Thunder because they were very gentle lads. They weren't Sons of Thunder because they went around saying, Would you like me to pray for you gently there? I don't think they were Sons of Thunder because they liked flower arranging and pottery. They weren't Sons of Thunder because they liked to do a little bit of landscape art. Uh, art. They weren't called that. They were Sons of Thunder because they were hard, wired, serious men. And they were loud and they talked with their fists. And they were fishermen, the toughest and the roughest of the whole lot. And when they joined up with Jesus, they surrendered everything. We sang earlier, but I surrender all. They gave up their father's business. It says they left their father with the business and literally jumped overboard as fishermen and went and followed Jesus. And after Jesus had said these things, the next incident is what happened with these two buddies, these, these two brothers, James and John, who were really in Jesus' inner circle. And they had a certain idea of what was going to happen next. It says this. When then James and John came to Jesus after he'd said these things, and they said, Teacher, we want, you, we want to ask you to do something for us. And Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? And they answered, You will have glory in your kingdom. Will you let one of us sit at your right hand and the other to sit at your left? You see, 
These guys were going into a power play. They wanted to rule the world. They were expecting Jesus' kingdom to come. They were expecting the Romans to be overthrown. They were expecting that there was going to be a powerful political change. And they wanted to be right in the heart of what was going on. They wanted to be right at the middle of what was going on. In actual fact, they wanted to be influential in the real key thing that was going to go down. And they're not shy about their ambitions. Their ambition is to be some of the bosses who rule the new operation that Jesus is inaugurating. Everybody wants to rule the world. Everybody wants to be at the top table. That's where they wanted to be. I love this. It says, you know, in some translations it says, you know, it says, teacher, we want you to do a favor for us. Would you do us an old favor? Would you do a favor for us, Lord? Would you mind? It's just a small favor. Have you ever asked God for a favor? Yeah, I've asked God for a favor. I remember one night I was lying in bed a good number of years ago. It was not that many years ago, but I was lying in bed one night. and uh, It was a Saturday night. It was late on a Saturday night, and I had a message. I was speaking the following morning, and the message was on my mind, but I was also tired, and I knew I needed to get some sleep. And it was late summer. It was in August, and I was lying in bed, and uh, just at the moment when I was just falling off to sleep, I heard my neighbors flood out into the garden. They were having a garden party, and everybody was you know, having a good time at this garden party. There was the clinking of bottles and clinking of glasses and laughing and joking and chatting and hubbub and all this kind of stuff. And I'm lying in bed and I'm lying there saying, I really need to get some sleep. I really need to get some sleep. And these people were having a great time. And at this stage, the clock is beginning to tick on. So we hit about one o'clock in the morning and I said, Lord, I really need to get sleep. You know I need sleep. Would you please do me a favor and send some rain on this party? And as I lay there thinking, Lord, let there be rain, there was a blast of wind. I kid you not. About five minutes later, I heard a blast of wind and rain hit my, win- hit my back window. And all I heard from the party was, ah, it's lashing! Ah! And everybody ran into the house. And I lay there going, thank you, Lord. <laughs> About six months later, I was having a, back- a garden party myself. And I said, Lord, give us sunshine. And it lashed all day long. He is a righteous God who causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the ungodly. He causes the rain to fall on the ungodly and on the righteous. Would anyone say amen? Sometimes we want favors. We just want, Lord, would you just, would you just do me a favor? Would you give me a dig out here? Lord, will you do us a favor? Let, let, us sit, let us sit left and right. And Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking. Sometimes it's so true of our lives. We pray for things, but we don't really know what it is that we're asking for. Lord, give me more patience. Here, have three children. You know, we, we, we pray things, but we don't actually know what that means. We say, Lord, would you, would you rule in my heart? And then circumstances happen that force us onto our knees and we go, well, I didn't really want that. Like, I thought you could kind of rule in my heart and still everything be okay. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I must drink? Can you be baptized with the same kind of baptism that I must have? And they're going, you know, they give the Barack Obama answer. Yes, we can. Absolutely, we can do that, Lord. You just bring on that baptism. I'm ready for it. Are you ready to drink the cup, John? Oh, I'm ready to drink the cup. I'm ready, James. Let's do this thing. Let's do this thing. They had no idea what Jesus was saying to them. They had no idea what the question that they were being asked was. Do you, are you able? Yes, Lord, I'm able. No, you're not. Or maybe you are. Jesus said to them, you will drink the same cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the same baptism that I must have, but I cannot choose 
who will sit at my right or my left. These places are prepared for those for whom they are prepared by God. Sorry, these places are for those for whom they are prepared by God. And he says to them, and he kind of prophesies to them, and, and, and maybe they don't kind of get the darkness of what he's saying. He says, yeah, you, you, know, you are going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You are going to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to experience. And that was going to be a cup of suffering. It was going to be a baptism of suffering for both of them. Both of them were going to pay a huge price for following Jesus. Jesus said, count the cost. Count the cost. They were going to pay a huge price. James is martyred. The story of his martyrdom is in the book of Acts. He had his head cut off by Herod. He had his head cut off. That's what actually happened to James. And Herod thought it was fantastic and the Jews were delighted. That was the price that James paid for saying, yes, Lord, we're able to do this. John ended up in exile, lived till he was a very, very old man, wrote some of the most fantastic literature in the New Testament, including the Gospel of John, and became known as the Gospel, or became known as the Apostle of Love. He lost the handle, Son of Thunder, and became known as the Apostle of Love. That was, that's what became of him in the fullness of time. But in this situation, they were in for a power play. They wanted to be the big boys. They wanted to be at the forefront of what God was doing or what they thought God was doing. They wanted to be big men in a small pool. And it says that when the other disciples heard this, hmm, the ten other followers heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. They got a wee little bit annoyed at the power, the snaky little power play that these guys were throwing on. And I wonder why they were so upset. Well, they were upset because they wanted to be the bosses too. Everybody wants to rule the world. They wanted to be part of the gig too. That's why they were so annoyed. James and John, how did it, the cheek of you to ask to sit at the left hand and at the right hand? And yet at the same time, they were just as eager for those same positions. They were just as eager for those spots because they didn't really yet fully comprehend what it meant to follow Jesus. It's interesting that in every one of the accounts where Jesus describes his, his, uh, his death and his resurrection... Specifically in the Gospel of Mark, there are three accounts where Jesus says, look lads, we're going up to Jerusalem and this is going to happen and it's not going to be nice and this is going to happen. And each time he says that, he follows it up with a story or an account about the price of discipleship, the price of following Jesus. And this is where we pick up the second part of this narrative. It says Jesus called all the followers together and he said, now the non-Jewish people have men they call rulers or tyrants. You know that those rulers love to show their power over the people. And their important leaders love to use all their authority. But it should not be that way among you. If one of you wants to become great, then he must serve you like a servant. Now, we don't like the name servant. I don't like the idea of servant. We watch quaint kind of, quaint kind of early 20th century stories of kind of servants serving. I mean, what's, what's the name of that one where they're all up in, on ITV, the something house, uh, Abbey? Downton Abbey, I like to watch Downton Abbey. I say, shall I serve you tea in the, in the drawing room now, sir? And we kind of look, servants, ah, shit, God help us. You know, they had such a tough job. We don't like this idea of servants. When I was a kid, there was a program called Upstairs, Downstairs. I can't, you know, I'm not going to show my, well, I'm not going to show my age. I told you, I was 50 last week. How can I show my age? And then he says, but if one of you wants to be great, he must become like a servant. And instinctively, 
in me, inside me, something turns over and goes, eee, I don't like that. I don't like the way that that feels because I am somebody. I, you know, I mean, I want to be somebody. I don't like this idea of being like some kind of servant. I mean, that's servant's work, Jesus goes on to say. If one of you wants to become the most important, do you know what? I'm going to openly say, I'd love to be the most important. And nobody else is going to put up their hand, but it's okay, you're all liars. I want to be the most important. I'm going to tell you the truth. Tom doesn't want to be the most important. He's too far too humble for that. But I want to be the most important. But he must serve all of you like what? Like a slave. No, he's really drilling down into their understanding of the culture. You see, we don't have slaves, by and large. I don't think anybody here has a slave working in the scullery at home, do they? We didn't have slaves. Slaves had no rights. No rights. You were the property of someone else. You did what you were told, when you were told, how you were told. And that was it. You didn't have any choices or rights like that. You were a slave. And Jesus said, if you want to be the really biggest in this kingdom, then you are going to have to be a slave. He said, in the same way, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve. The Son of Man came to give his life to save many people. You see, Jesus can't give us any other example other than what he did himself. He laid down his life. Now, I know you're getting quiet and you're getting uncomfortable, and that's okay. That's all right. I get quiet and I get uncomfortable when I read these verses too. In actual fact, if I had my way with the Bible, these verses probably wouldn't even really be in it. I was thinking of getting a bottle of Tipex to my Bible and taking out all those bits that involve being humble and serving and being a slave and laying down your life. Because if I didn't have to do all that, I'd love to follow Jesus. Following Jesus would be so easy if I didn't actually have to like follow him. Oh, you mean, you mean not on Twitter like? Oh, he thought it was on Twitter you followed him. No, you can't find him on Facebook and you can't follow him on Twitter. You have to follow him in reality in your life. I don't like these verses. I'm going to be completely and totally honest with you. They challenge who I am. They challenge my reality. They challenge my identity. They challenge my values. But I can only say that we must simply follow the example of Jesus Christ. I mean, am I the only one here who doesn't enjoy reading verses like this? Thank you, Dara. Somebody's honest here in the front row. I am not the, I see Albert Casey, God bless you. You've got a future, boy. You've got a future. (laughs) You know, I'm not the only one, I think, who gets uncomfortable reading these. And we kind of maybe, you know, when you you read those verses that said, I'm going to provide everything you need. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And you must lay down your life for me. No, thank you, Jesus. You see, Jesus was always teaching, and so often when he was teaching, he was using what's called paradox. Paradox is the apparency of a contradiction. And when we look at these paradoxes here, we're going to look at the power that's in paradox. When we look at these paradoxes, we're going to go, yeah, but that doesn't fit with how the world works. Precisely. This doesn't fit with how it works in my job. Precisely. This is not how it works when I'm at school. Precisely. That is precisely the point. We are aiming towards a different set of values and a different kingdom. Look at what Jesus said. He said, the last will be first and the first will be last. 
Now, whoever goes into a race and wants to be last, so what are you, what are you hoping for in this year's marathon? Well, I'm hoping to come last, if that's at all possible. Because <sighs> I just want to be so humble after I've run this whole, ah, after I've done all these stretches, I want to come last. Nobody wants to come last. Everybody wants to come first. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like. Who said I don't? I'll have you. Yeah, you want to be thorough, but then you're realistic in your expectation. You know, he says the last will be first and the first will be last. That's not how it works in the world, brothers and sisters. It is not how it works. The other one, he says, those who lose their life will find it. Those who lose their life will find it. You see, the more we grab and gather and pull and make ourselves the center of the gravity in our own universes, the more we lose our life. The more our life escapes us because we're so busy with the things that we're pulling towards us. And Jesus says, let the things around you go, lose your life, lose your ambition, take on my ambition and you will find your life. And Jesus isn't the only one who's saying that. No psychologists and philosophers and theologians all across the centuries are saying, Jesus was right about this. I'm going to quote one of them in a few minutes. He said this, the least will be the greatest. The least will be the greatest. But like, how, how, that, that is just not firing in my head. I can't get my brain synapses to make those things meet. How can the least be the greatest? All I know is that that's what Jesus said. Whoever's going to be the least, whoever's going to wash your feet, whoever's going to, I remember once being in, in, in one of our kids' own camps and, and one of the children there um, had an incident and let's just say it involved his pants and his inability to control his bowels and, and he went into the bathroom and somebody came out and said, there's a child inside in the toilet, I'm afraid they've soiled their pants. What are, you going to do? what are you going to do about it, Michael? Thank you, I said. Thank you. And I said, I'm going to pray about it. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to pray about it. <laughs> I said, somebody's got to solve this problem. So I go in and there's a child standing at a urinal with their pants down around their ankles. And God helped the poor child. He was just a young kid. He was after, you know, soiling himself. So I just said, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, I surrender all. Got a loop paper, wiped his backside and carried on about it. And I've never mentioned it to anyone until now. Sometimes the people who end up doing the nose wiping and the backside wiping actually turn out to be the greatest people. Not me, no, I'm not using me for an example. But sometimes you're going to get pulled into a situation where what you're doing may seem invisible, may seem worthless. But Jesus says those are the very people who are the greatest. What did Jesus say? He said about himself, unless a seed of corn falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Do you know that for everything to live, something has to die? We don't like that. We, we don't like that idea. But for everything to live, something has to pregenerate it by dying. I know I'm a father. You die when you have children. Faster than you thought you would. Like, when we look at these, you're not going to go to work tomorrow morning and say, okay, guys, who's going to be first? Because you're going to be last. It's not, it's not, it, it, it doesn't fit with our culture, and it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel comfortable to read these things, but I've got to say, if this is what Jesus said, then it must be true. The writer Albert Schweitzer said this. I, I, I thought this was really good. Albert Schweitzer said this. He said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. 
The only ones who will be really happy if you really want joy in your life, start serving. Now, I'm going to put a little caveat here, and I think it's an important caveat. Some people feel that right now they're not able to serve. They're just not in a place that they're able to give. Here is my humble advice to you. If you start serving and start giving, you'll find that you're able to serve and give a lot more than you thought you were able to serve and give. And the way out of your morass is to start serving and to start giving. The way out of the morass of self-focus is to focus on the needs and desires and the needs of others. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you with me? Have I annoyed you enough yet? Because I want to make this point. We live in a culture that worships talent, don't we? It's the talented people who float to the top. No, there was a time when people who didn't have tell people had talent and it didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference to them. But now all of a sudden, people are kind of focused on their talents. Well, I don't have a talent for doing that. I don't have a talent for singing or I don't have a talent for acting or we kind of focus on the stagey type things. We, I, I don't have a talent for technical things. I don't have a talent. But if you were to take the idea of talent or even calling, I don't feel called to serve in the worship ministry. If you were to take that and apply it to being in a home, you might find, especially if you're in a marriage, that you might find yourself in a little bit of trouble. I remember when my first son was born, I came into, into hospital after my son was born, my oldest son, and uh, my wife was there, and you know, we were all happy, and I said, uh, so we're looking at the child, and it's like, ah, oh, he's so lovely, and you know the way you're kind of like, oh, full of love, and all that kind of stuff, and then my wife Elma said, she said, would you like to come and bath him and change him with me? And I said, of course. But inside I was going, no! I don't want to touch this little tiny little, this tiny little thing. So then I had to change his nappy. Now, I personally don't have a ministry for changing nappies. Would anyone say amen? I never felt called to changing a nappy. It's an amazing thing. I never said, sat there and the Lord said to me, thou shalt change nappies, Michael. Never heard it, never heard that voice. So I said to my wife, I don't have that calling at all. So after she beat me black and blue, I went in to the change the baby. So I remember going to change the baby, and I remember I took off Robin's, my oldest son, took off his, his nappy, and, and you know, babies, when they do their first, um, you know, uh, um, it's black is the only description for it. And it is evil sludge inside in that nappy. And as I opened up that nappy and began to remove that evil, evil sludge and lifted up his bony little legs. Do you know anybody here has ever changed a nappy in a very small baby? You know, they've got these little bony legs. Like, you know, I mean, the chicken drumsticks you get like in, in Aldi are kind of got more meat in them than these, right? So you pull up his leg and they start wiping his little tiny, tiny backside. He's got the smallest bottom in the world. Not anymore, but he did once have the smallest bottom in the world. Little tiny little bottom, you're going, ah. I mean, it's not a comfortable feeling, I'm sorry. I mean, a couple of months later when they've got a big fat backside and you're going, yeah, I can wipe that baby. But, <laughs> but as I was changing my son's nappy, I gotta tell you something happened inside me. I gotta tell you something happened. And I can honestly tell you that other than going, oh no, not another one of Rory's uh, Environmental Protection Agency nappies, I didn't particularly mind changing nappies. Do you know why? Because I loved the nappy. <laughs> I loved the child that was wearing the nappy. I loved him. And I didn't mind if I got a little bit smelly or I did gag it a little bit the odd time. I didn't mind because I loved him. And I remember, do you know, I think, I think people kind of pick up things. I think even small children pick things up. 
And afterwards, when I would go, I'm going to get lumpy my throat, no, forgive me. I would go and, ah, stop that. I would go and change, <laughs> stop, you're still getting upset in my bed. I would go to change his nappy, and I remember him as a tiny baby. And he would buck, and he would kick, and his arms and his legs would be going. He just loved having his nappy change. And then you're sitting there, and suddenly this fountain gets, you get sprinkled on in the whole routine. You ne- I never minded changing a nappy after. You know what? Because I love, I love the baby. And lads, when you love the people you serve, you don't mind what you do for them. I, don't, I would do anything for my wife, and I mean anything for my wife. Do you know why? Because I love her. Because she loves me. She's done some very, very difficult things for me. God bless my poor wife. But because she loves me, and she likes to serve. And when I, see, when I see this baby's nappy, I never had a talent for nappy changing, but I didn't mind doing it. I didn't feel a particular calling, but I liked doing it after a while. How tapped am I? But it was because I love the person that's involved. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I could easily have said, well, I don't have a talent for nappy changing. I just can't seem to get those things to stick on properly. You know, the pull-ups don't even pull up properly for me. You know, the, you, know you kind of, you know, <laughs> we were your kids for about a year when the pull-ups routine started. You're kind of trying to pull up the nappy on the baby. And the first, I see, Robin was lovely, my oldest son. They're, they're not here, so it's safe. And this is all being recorded. Oh, no. He, he loved having his nappy changed. But my second son, Fionn, oh, merciful hour. He twisted and he booked it. Oh, he did everything to avoid. of his nappy change. You're trying to wipe and you're hitting the wall. And, ah. I didn't mind doing it because I loved them. But it didn't mean that I felt that this is what my life was all about. What I did feel was that it was good to serve and love my own kids. I mean, come on, like, Jenny, who doesn't love their own? At least, if you don't, there's a problem. But I didn't have a particular talent. And I think sometimes when we come into churches and organizations like this, we go, well, I don't have a talent for that area. But i got to tell you, I, I, I believe something that has kind of gone out of fashion. No, I think in churches, and it's gone out of fashion in church culture, especially in the West. And that is that I believe this. The need is the call. So some people say, I don't feel called now to working with children, or I don't feel called to mind my own children in the creche, okay? I don't feel called to doing that at all. Sorry, that's a little bit of a barb there. Um, I don't feel called to doing that at all. Or, no, I don't feel called to serving coffee. I'm just here to do the big thing. I, I'd like to preach if that would be okay with you, but I don't feel called to doing that. Do you know something? Where there is a need, there is a call. And that's, it's a lot harder to serve Jesus in Cork than it is in Kansas. Okay? There's nobody here from Kansas, is there? It's okay. You're from Kansas. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> How prophetic is that, huh? And I tell you something, sister, it is easier to serve Cork back or serve Jesus back in Kansas than it is here in Cork. Because in Kansas, when you meet the 37% of the people who, called, who profess themselves to be committed Christians in Kansas, looked it up this morning on Google, on the Google machine, 37%. In Ireland, 1%. So when you go into a shopping mall over in Kansas, you meet 37 other Christians and you're high-fiving and saying, praise the Lord, as you're going through Kansas. And you, people say to you, so what's your job? They say, you know, I'm a pastor. They say, you get a pastor's discount here on Tuesday. And they give you a pastor's discount. In Ireland, in Cork, people say to you, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And they say, is that spelled with a B? Take a minute, take a minute, you'll work it out. Say, I'm a pastor, and I'll tell you, if you want to stop a conversation in Cork, just say to people, if you, when you come and tell a joke, I'll tell you. If you want to stop a conversation in Cork, just say to somebody, well, I'm a born-again Christian. And suddenly you become like, 
unmatter. You just, just anti, you just disappear into the black hole. You just disappear. Because it's harder with respect to follow Jesus in Cork than it is in Kansas. Because in Kansas, everybody loves the Christians. They love the Christians and they do fantastic work. But in Ireland, they're a bunch of weirdos. Are you going to the weird church and say there on McCartan Street, are you? I heard they all be singing and put their hands up everything and say there. They're mad by the whole lot of them. They think Jesus is up there and everything. That's unbelievable. Would you like your pastor's discount now, Michael? No. There's no pastor's discount. But let me tell you, because there's only 1% of us, and I'm going to get back to this in a second, because there's only 1% of us, now this is by the census, about 1% of people describe themselves as being born again, Christian or evangelical, just as broad or Pentecostal. But 1%, they're thereabouts. So one in a hundred people that you meet actually believe in the same Jesus as you believe. That's the plain truth of it. But one in a hundred people. Now, because there's only one in a hundred of us, we kind of have to do things different than the way they do it in Kansas. This is what we've got to do. You see, because there's only one in a hundred of us, we will not be able to feed the starving of the world. I'm sorry, I'd like to tell you that we can, but we can't. There's only one in a hundred of us. We cannot transform our city institutions because there's only one in a hundred of us believe in Jesus. But you know what we can do? Do you know what we actually can do? We can build churches where people can come and encounter Jesus Christ, even if there's only 1% of the city population want to do that. Are you with me? We can begin to contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God in Cork and in Ireland simply by serving in churches like this. Would anyone say amen? We are all on the same page, aren't we? Do you know when the Bible says, let your kingdom come? Do you know when it says, let your kingdom come? No, when the early Christian, watch your time, Michael. When the early Christian readers read that, they knew what that meant. You see, when Rome came to invade your city, the first guys that came had this big banner and it said, SPQR, Senatus Populescu Romanum. And these soldiers marched up to your door. And when those soldiers marched up to your door, you knew you were finished because Rome had arrived. Are you with me? But Caesar wasn't there. Caesar and the majors, the Roman guard, what were they called? The senior guard of Caesar. I can't remember what it's called. The senior guard of Caesar, they weren't there. It was the infantry. It was the troops that arrived first with the Roman standard. Do you know who the troops in the New Testament are? Bit of an insight. You are the troops of the kingdom of God. You are. So when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, he's saying, yeah, go on. That's what he's saying. You go to church in the morning and go, I just need a cup of coffee and a bit of quiet time with Jesus. No, you need to do something with respect, with respect. This is what, you see, we get taken up with so much of our stuff. You are, you're in the Lord's army, okay? And you're part of that coming of that kingdom. You are the sentinels of the kingdom of God, wherever you go. But most importantly, when you come into the church. So here's the thing. You might never see anybody come to Jesus, fall on their knees and say, what must I do to be saved? You might never see anybody do that in your life. But you know what you can do? You can welcome people who come into church who are already open to the good news of Jesus. Who are already open to having an experience and an encounter with the Holy Spirit. You can welcome them. You can give them a cup of coffee. You can be on security. You take somebody who's doing, like, for instance, security. Security, I sometimes see our poor bedraggled security people. And they're at the front door and they're trying to be as cheerful as they can. And they've got their high-vis vests on. And sometimes I look at them and I see that there's a bit of deflation in them. And they kind of go, what am I doing here? Just standing at the door. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what you're doing? You're protecting the flock of 
God's people. That's what you're doing. You're not just there as security for, let's say, sorry, no shirt, no shoes, you can't get in tonight. You're there to protect God's people, to stop anybody from the outside coming in, if you will, a vassal of Satan, from coming in and upsetting the church. And you're also stopping the kids from escaping out and being taken off by strangers. You're protecting God's people. That's what you're doing. I just want to put a bit of picture on it. Anyway, where are we? No, I'm not lost. This is what Jesus said in the ICB. I took this translation from the ICB. It says, the thing you should want most, you're familiar with this, is God's kingdom and doing what God wants. All these other things you need will be given to you. You'll know probably better to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added to you, the NIV version that I learned. But I like this because it was simpler. It just boiled it down. The thing he says, Jesus is saying, the thing you should want the most is God's kingdom and doing what God wants. Not what I want. Not what Tom wants. Not what you respect what your wife or what your job or what your culture wants, but what God wants. And do the things that he says are right. And then he says, all these other things you need will be just given to you. I just decided to serve God and all the other things were just given to me. I didn't, you know, and so don't turn them or they, just, they were just given to me. C.S. Lewis simplifies this verse when he says this. He says, you should aim at heaven and you get the earth thrown in. But aim at the earth and you will get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get the earth thrown in. I remember years ago being in, 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 being in an electrical shop and I bought a TV. It was a big TV at the time. It was a big TV. And the guy said, look, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll throw in a DVD player. I'll tell you how old that is. It was it DVD players. And he says, I'll throw in a DVD player. He just threw it in because I bought the TV. And Jesus is saying, if you buy the kingdom of heaven, earth will be thrown in for you. And you needn't worry about the things of earth because I will just throw them into the bargain. I will look after that. Okay. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And he says, so brothers, let me before he says so brothers, right? All of what you read in the book of Romans all the way up to chapter 12 is all about who we are and what, what, what we're like and what God has done for us and how we should respond to that and how we struggle sometimes with good and evil that goes on inside us and laying out all that God has done for mankind is all laid out and then he gets to Romans chapter 12 and he begins by saying this so basically he's saying in light of all the stuff I just said in the previous 11 chapters so brothers since God has shown us this great mercy I beg you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him your offering must be only for God and pleasing to Him. This is the spiritual way for you to worship God. And there's a contradiction in there. It's a living sacrifice. They knew sacrifices died. Birds got their necks ringed. Their animals had their throats cut. They knew that sacrifices were dead. And he says, no, what I want you to be is living sacrifice. So that you are no longer wasted. You are no longer exhausted. You are no longer poured out for your own purposes or for the purposes of the world. But you're poured out for God's purposes. That you dedicate your energies and your time. And he says, this is how you worship God. Do you know, when we were standing here earlier, we were singing, I surrender all. And just as we were singing, I was just saying, Lord, please let that be true in my life. Please just let that be true. If it's not true today, let it be true tomorrow. If it's not true tomorrow, let it be true in the future. Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice for you. Lord, I want you to take these hands. Can I get the worship team up? Can I get the worship team up? We're just going to sing just the chorus of the song, All I Am. 
And the reason I'm saying all of this today is because today is our volunteer Sunday. Tom's going to lay it out a little bit more clearly in a minute. But I can assure you of this. What Jesus said is true. Those who serve will be the greatest. Those that we think nothing of right now will be great then. There's a time coming when all that we thought was really important and valuable will turn out to have been not of much value at all in the end. When we've gathered everything to ourselves and we discover at the end that we can't hold on to one tiny piece of it. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing. I'm just going to invite you to raise your hands. We're just going to pray briefly. And we're going to sing and Tom's going to speak for a second. Can I invite you to close your eyes just for a moment? Would you be willing to seek God's kingdom first? Do you want the earth to be thrown in? Are you ready to take another step in the surrender? Because sometimes we can't surrender all, but maybe we can surrender the next thing. Would you be willing to pray that prayer? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we raise our hands and in a moment, Lord, we're going to sing, take these hands. I know they're empty, but with you they can be used for beauty in your perfect plan. All I am is yours. Lord Jesus, take these empty hands of ours. Take these empty vessels and fill them with your spirit. Would anyone say amen? Give us the energy and the strength required to serve you, to love you, to honor you, to do our best for your kingdom, Lord Jesus. We give ourselves into your hands yet again, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, that if you have knocked on our door in the past, Lord, we ask you to keep on knocking, Lord. And do not let us go. We pray that in Jesus' name. Let's sing. Take these hands. Take these hands. I know they're empty, but with you they can be used for beauty in your perfect plan. All I am is yours. And take these feet. I know they stumble, but you use the weak. You use the humble, so please use me. All I am is yours. I give you all my life. I'm letting it go. A living sacrifice.